Alright, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to read verses 9 through 21. You guys that took homiletics have heard me say this before. Um, I think that this particular text, more than any other in the New Testament, gives you the heart of an evangelist. and tells you what an evangelist's heart should look like. So notice what it says. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what He has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known to your, in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray. Father, we need the Spirit to help us if we're to learn anything. And Father, I am conscious that as I'm seeking to equip brothers and sisters in the Lord to labor in personal evangelism, how important and how crucial these things are. So we pray that the Spirit of God will drive these truths home to our hearts, give it, help us to be alert this afternoon, and help these to be life-changing truths that we learn. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Several months ago, we did a deep dive in the Great Commission. And we learned that what Jesus has commanded the church to do, you hear, hear that, that, he's commanded the church to do. It's given to the local church, right? The thing he's commanded us to do is to go into the world and make disciples. That is, to labor in evangelism, and then you're to baptize them, and then you're to teach them to observe all things Jesus has commanded. So as we looked at that, as we thought through those things, and then saw how the apostles themselves applied it, what we saw is, missions is evangelism and it's church planting. That is, what's that, that is what's involved in fulfilling the Great Commission. So what we're trying to do is flesh out some of the practical aspects of what does that look like. So last time we got together, we talked. We used the rubric Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter seven, that of of the narrow gate and the difficult way versus the wide gate and the broad way. And so we talked about first of all the narrow gate and true conversion. Then we talked about the narrow gate and true assurance. Our focus today for this hour is going to be the narrow gate and true evangelism. What does evangelism look like if you hold to a narrow gate? And then this afternoon, we're going to talk about the narrow gate and true churches. What is a true church? If church planting is what's involved, then we're going to have to ask ourselves, what is a church? 
What are the marks of a church according to Scripture itself? So we'll be examining those things together. So for this hour then, it's the narrow gate in true evangelism, and I'm going to teach it to you under two headings. First, I want to talk to you about the methodology of true evangelism. And secondly, the message of true evangelism. Let me go ahead and just tell you right now, put my cards on the table, what I'm telling you is the message is the method. Because the message is what's more, most important. So get the message right, get the gospel right, and then get the gospel out. So the methodology of true evangelism in one sense... If you sign up for this course hoping I was going to teach you a whole bunch of methods of evangelism, you're going to be a little bit disappointed. I mean, I am going to talk to you about methodology somewhat. But let's just recognize that when we're talking about methodology, what we simply mean is finding a context within which you can tell the gospel to someone who needs it. Whatever that context is, whether you're talking about in your home, over a meal, whether you're talking about in the workplace, whether you're talking about in the open air, I mean, whatever, you know, in the church, wherever it is. It's, talking, it's, it's giving that message to them. So, several observations here at the beginning about methodology. First, you've heard me say this again. You will hear me say it again in the future, God willing. It is simply not true that every Christian is a missionary. It is true that every Christian is to be a witness. Saying that every Christian is a missionary means nobody is. That's like saying every Christian is a pastor. No, they're not. Every Christian is a deacon. No, they're not. Is every Christian meant to be a pastor or a deacon? Absolutely not. And if a missionary is someone who is a cross-cultural minister seeking to plant churches, can every single Christian, does every single Christian have the authority and skill set necessary to plant churches? And of course the answer is no. The majority do not. But that being said, Though we're not all missionaries, we are all called to witness to the truth of the gospel. That is, all of us as believers are to be fishers of men. We're to be salt and light in whatever context God has placed us. For a, a, a mother of young children, does that mean she's supposed to be burning the woods down, trying to win people for Jesus? Or does it mean she's supposed to be evangelizing her children? It means she's evangelizing her children. Her primary focus is that evangelism, and that's no small thing. That's a big deal. Okay, uh, She doesn't need to be anywhere else. But second thing, whatever methodology is used, evangelistic methods are simply ways of finding contexts in which the message of the gospel can be proclaimed to lost men and women. That's true whether you're preaching in a pulpit. That's true whether you're speaking to somebody one-on-one in pastoral counseling. It's true if you're having a conversation with a neighbor and sharing Jesus with them. Whatever the context is, here's the idea. You're just trying to find a fishing hole to fish for souls. right? So there's your methodology. It can be hospitality. It can be passing out tracts. It can be you know, all kinds of things, different ways to do it. But the point is, the methodology is to facilitate the message. That's the point. And then the third thing is, the central methodology in evangelism is the words you use to make Jesus known to lost men and women. When an angel appeared to the Gentile Cornelius, he told him, he said, send men and fetch Peter. He's over in Joppa. Bring him here. In Acts chapter 11, verse 14, the angel said to him that Peter, quote, will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. Did you hear that? He will tell you words by which you will be saved. Content. There's, met, there's a specific content. It matters what you say, right? 
Then you have Paul, when he exhorted the saints in Colossae to witness to the surrounding world. What did he say? Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer each one. Now, did you hear what he said? Let your speech be cut with salt. Be mindful of how you speak to the lost people that you know and encounter. Use every opportunity to say something about Christ and to draw their attention to Christ. So, in one sense, I'm not teaching you evangelistic methodology. In another sense, I'm teaching you the central point of methodology, which is what you say. My Old Testament professor was a man named Dr. Brian Byer. And he used to say this. He used to say to us in class, whenever someone asks you the question, what must I do to be saved? All of eternity is standing on the brink. That person's eternal destiny is right there. And, and how you answer determines much, doesn't it? I mean, humanly speaking. How you answer. There's a great deal of weight upon your shoulders to tell them the right thing. Is it try and do better? Try and reform your life? What are you going to tell them? Okay. So my goal is to answer the question, when you have opportunities to share the gospel with the lost, what is it you're supposed to say to them? What's the basic, fundamental content of the gospel? Oftentimes, we get to say little things in the grocery store, don't we? Say a little thing about the Lord here or there. Or, hey, how can I be praying for you? Or have those little conversations with people as we're out and about. And there's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, we, we should do that. Isn't that a part of what it means to having salty speech? You're saying little things so that as you continue to encounter those people, maybe the day will come when they ask you more. And you have the opportunity. Hey, you know, you said you're praying for me. Can, can we talk about this? Could you, I'm struggling with something. Can we talk about it? And they're going to look to you for some counsel. So in other words, you're throwing out those little things hoping that there'll be a greater opportunity. What I'm trying to get at tonight is this. What happens when that opportunity comes? And it's not just a few little statements about Jesus. It's the whole gospel. And you want to give them the gospel from start to finish. What would you say? That's the thing I want to give you tonight. Now, how many of you, I know mom is going to raise her hand when I say this. How many of you are familiar with an evangelistic training course known as Evangelism Explosion? Mom is. Anybody else? Okay, Laura. Yeah, I see a couple guys on Regan and Brian are familiar with it. Uh, it's called EE for short. I don't know what it's about Christians. We just love to have an acronyms for everything. You know, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, CLA. <laughs> you know, that's just what we got to do, right? But EE is Evangelism Explosion. It was a course for evangelism and personal evangelism taught by D. James Kennedy. Reformed Presbyterian down in Florida. I believe it was developed either in the late 70s or the early 80s. But the Southern Baptist Church I grew up in as a teenager used that training course. It was like 12 weeks or something like that. You had a mentor who trained it in you. And what you basically did is you memorized an outline. You memorized a speech, basically. Um, I took it when I was in the seventh grade. My dad was my trainer. So I became a certified trainer in EE when I was in the seventh grade. <laughs> so uh, I don't think they realized my age when they sent me the certificate. But <laughs> you know what evangelism explosion is? It's evangelism in a can. It is canned evangelism. You memorize an outline. You memorize a speech. You have transitions between each point. Uh, you know how to start off a conversation. You're given points on how to end the conversation. If someone interrupts you and asks a question, you're even memorized the speech. It's kind of like when you call somebody for a warranty repair and you ask them a question, you know they're looking it up and go, oh, yeah. Okay, what I'm supposed to tell you is, you know, and that's what you do. 
And, uh, and then you memorize verses of Scripture to prove each of your points and things like that. So let me give you a brief example. And you're going to be thinking I'm making fun of this. I'm actually not. I, 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 I appreciate E. I'm going to tell you why in a moment. But you start off by asking two diagnostic questions. That's what it's called. The first is this. If you died today, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? Now that's a really good way to start, isn't it? And you can imagine people are like, oh, oh, wow, ooh. That's a hard question, right? And you follow it up with a second question. The first question doesn't get him. The second one always does. Here it is. If you were to die today, and you stood before God and He asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Now that, that one, I mean, that is phenomenal, isn't it? And you can imagine that almost every answer given is usually some variation of works righteousness. I try to do the best I can. I try to be a good person. Hope for the best when I stand before God. That kind of thing. My dad actually was doing some evangelism explosion things. Went to a woman's house and asked her how she knew she was going to go to heaven. She says, oh, well, a pastor visited me one time. And while he's talking to me, he took out a pen and wrote my name on his hands. That's how I know I'm going to go to heaven. Literally, that kind of stuff. So after you hear those questions... And you ask those questions, of course, most people, you, you've just you know, exposed where they really are. Then you say to them, you know, Bob, when I came over here tonight, I thought I had some good news to share with you tonight. But after hearing your answer to those questions, I think I have the greatest news you're ever going to hear. That's an awesome statement, isn't it? Let me see if I can back it up. And then you launch into your outline, right? And so you launch into your outline, and it goes like this. You go, yo, Bob, heaven's a free gift. It's not earned or deserved. But man's a sinner, and he cannot save himself. And God is a just God. He must punish sinners. And God is a merciful God, and that's why he sent his son Jesus to die for sinners like us and rise from the dead. But your works can't save you. You must be saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. And then you lead them through this conclusion. And then if they pray to receive Christ, you welcome them to God's forever family. And I know what you're probably thinking. And if you act now, I'll give you absolutely free this Gospel of John. (laughs) Operators are standing by. (laughs) Now, it's canned evangelism. It's kind of awkward. It feels a little unreal, doesn't it? It sounds like I'm making fun of evangelism explosion. Let me tell you something. I thank God for evangelism explosion. You know why? Two reasons. Number one... I was in the seventh grade. I'd been converted as an eight-year-old when I was in the third grade. Now I was 11 years old. I was in seventh grade. And it's the first time that I ever had articulated to me justification by faith alone. I had believed in Jesus by faith alone already. But suddenly it was articulated. And I remember being a sophomore in high school and our history teacher, who was not a Christian, was talking about Martin Luther. I'd heard of Martin Luther. I didn't know who he was. Since he taught that justification is by faith alone. They said that in class, and I was like, hey, he's one of the good guys. You know? and, and, and when I came to the Reformation in college, it was like I was coming home because I'd already been taught justification by faith when I was in seventh grade. And you know what else? Evangelism Explosion was the first time I ever learned how to articulate the gospel to somebody else. Can, though it may have been. It was something I got and I had to get over. But I'm glad I got it. Because otherwise I would have had nothing to get over. I heard Steve Martin say this one time, and I thought it was brilliant. I mean, it wasn't original with him. But he, he said, you ever notice that when Jesus first sent out the apostles two by two to preach, he gave them canned evangelism? 
Go into the, the village. You'll stay in this place. You'll do this thing. If they provide for you, you don't feel guilty for that because the labor is worthy of his hire. If they reject you, wipe the dust off your feet. And then when you exit, this is how you're going to exit. He gives them canned evangelism. Why? They had to start somewhere. They were not the uh, learned evangelists that you meet in the book of Acts. They had to start rudimentary, and Jesus gave them the rudiments. He taught them, the th- learn how to do this, and then you'll expand your repertoire. Right? So, Steve Martin's counsel was, okay, do you have a training method that has its defects? Okay, use it. Use it and tweak it as you teach it to your people. Tweak it so that you spit out the bones and give them the good stuff. But take the good things that it has and use that to help them. And that's very, very wise advice. So I'm saying all that to tell you that what I'm going to give you this afternoon is Jerry Slate's canned evangelism, okay? I'm going to teach you a rudimentary outline, and then we're going to make some applications of it at the end. Not saying that you're going to spit this out every time you're talking to somebody, but I'm going to give you the basic substance of what you share with somebody if you have the opportunity, start to finish, to say something to them. Okay? So we've talked about the methodology of true evangelism. Let's talk about the message. And true to form, being a pastor, I have three points under this one, right? If, you, if you're going to just summarize, what is, it you're, what is the content you're delivering to somebody? And I think you could take this through the book of Acts, look at every single evangelistic sermon, and you could boil it down and go, yep, all those things are present there. Okay? It's these. Three things. God is angry with sinners. God is gracious to sinners. And God grants repentance and faith to sinners. Now, I'm not saying, do not have a personal conversation with someone and say, I'm going to tell you this under three headings. If I'm in the pulpit, I might do that, right? <laughs> I'm not going to do that in one-on-one conversation. What I'm saying, though, is the substance of it needs to be in your in your in there. So let's flesh it out a little bit more. We've got three main headings, two subheadings under each one. What I'm trying to do is give you something that's really easy to keep in your mind, something easy to remember. So number one, Roman number one, God is angry with sinners. Two subpoints. A, the law of God. B, the day of God. Roman number two, God is gracious to sinners. A under that is the person of Jesus Christ. B is the work of Jesus Christ. Roman number three, God grants repentance and faith to sinners. A is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, that is his sufficiency to save. And B is the responsibility of sinners. So let's work through these and think through it. First of all, God is angry with sinners. Martin Lloyd-Jones said back in the 1950s, he was preaching through Acts, and he made the comment, he says, you know what's wrong with the days of evangelism? This is, remember, when I hear what I'm saying, 1950s. You know what's wrong with most of modern evangelism? It starts with Jesus. So it starts with God the Son when it should start with God the Father. People have to understand that they have offended a holy God. And until they understand that, they're not going to know why they need a Savior. You've heard me say it before. It's not enough to say Jesus is the answer. The world does not know what the question is. They don't know why they need a Savior. You have to show them why they need a Savior, and then suddenly that Savior becomes the most precious thing on earth to them because they realize nothing else can satisfy my need. And I have a need I didn't even know I had. You know, Adam didn't know he had a need. God created the animals two by two, and he had a perfect relationship with God and a perfect relationship with creation, but there's one thing he didn't have. What did he not have? A wife. But he didn't even know that he needed a wife. And so, do you remember what God did? He showed him. 
He brought with him, he brought the animals two by two and let them name them. So it's, it's, there's a male giraffe and a female giraffe, and there's a male zebra and a female zebra, and a male dog and a female dog. And there's when it comes to me, there's just me. What was God doing? He was showing him, you have a need and you don't know it. And then when he knew his need, it's not good for you to be alone. Then he made the wife for him. Even so in the gospel, you show people their need for Christ. And then you show them the Christ that they need. But they have to know why they need a Savior. You know how most evangelism starts today? It's the four spiritual laws. How many are familiar with the four spiritual laws? Or as we call them, the four spiritual flaws. The very first one is this. It's a little pamphlet from Campus Crusade for Christ. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's how you start. Now, I'm not saying that you should just go up to somebody, a total stranger, and say, God's angry with you. And, and, and you really need to repent. I'm, I'm saying break the ice and be kind and gracious, but you have to show them that God is angry with sinners. Um, so, the way the gospel is presented so often, you see this a lot, to be honest, in Southern Baptist circles, is that Jesus is presented as a, as a salve from temple problems. Are you lonely? Come to Jesus and He'll be your friend. Believe on Jesus and your marriage will sing. Receive Jesus as your Savior and you might get that new job promotion. Believe on Jesus and suddenly your wife who's been barren all these years will be pregnant. Now, have you ever watched some of the gospel films? You see that message over and over and over again. The man's life isn't going well, then he comes to receive Jesus at the midpoint of the film and then suddenly everything's right. Now, does God bless us with many temporal blessings when we come to Christ? He does. There are marriages. There are several in this room whom when God redeemed, when God regenerated a husband and a wife, he saved their marriage. Absolutely. Um, there are lazy men who learn to be diligent and they begin to excel in the workplace because now they're being uh, zealously and conscientiously concerned about being, pleasing God in the way they work. But there are also brothers and sisters who've lost a wife or a spouse because when they came to know Jesus, their spouse said, no, I'm not going to have this Jesus thing, and they left them. There have been uh, men, men who lost their jobs when they came to know Jesus because they suddenly became men of integrity and they wouldn't lie for their bosses anymore. And so their bosses fired them. There have been Indians in India who lost caste because they rejected their parents' religion and instead embrace Christ. And there are former Muslims who've been martyred because they no longer worship Allah. And why were there our brothers and sisters willing to endure hardship and even torture and persecution and martyrdom? Because they understood this counts for me in the age to come. And whatever discomfort I have to endure in this present age is just temporary. My never-dying soul depends upon these truths. So my point is, in evangelism, brothers and sisters, you cannot, you must not do a bait and switch. You don't hide the cost of discipleship from people. We've already talked about that in our last sessions, but you don't sugarcoat things for them. And you tell them why you need this. You need this because there's a day of wrath coming. And if you don't have Jesus, you're going to suffer eternity in hell. Paul could write to the young baby Christians in Thessalonica. They were only two or three months old in the Lord when he wrote his first epistle. You know that? 
he writes his first epistle to them and he says he's, he's concerned about them because they were being persecuted. They've just come to Christ and now their neighbors are throwing the rocks at them. And you remember what he tells them? Remember what we told you. Don't be discouraged by this because we told you this is what to expect. Here's newborn Christians in Christ. We told you from the very beginning, expect suffering. You're following Jesus. The world's hostile to that. So what you're suffering, we told you to expect. Right? So if Paul didn't hide from them the, 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 the difficulties of following Jesus, we should not hide from people the difficulties of following Jesus either. If you do, that fills up churches with unregenerate members. Right? So, so how do you show sinners their need for a Savior? Well, you must teach them two things. The law of God, and you must teach them about the day of God. The law of God. Paul says in Galatians, the law is a tutor. It's a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The Ten Commandments are not arbitrary rules that God just came up with to make sinners miserable or something like that. They are a transcript of His own character. My children and I were singing just last night, Psalm 103. He made known His ways to Moses. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, He was telling him, this is what I am like. So it's a transcript of His immutable character. So when you show the law to men, What's it do? It exposes their consciences to the character of God. It puts them in the presence of His holiness and exposes how unholy they are. That's why it was painful to go through the Ten Commandments in my preaching, right? It's every single week we just get convicted and I got convicted preaching it to you because it shows us how holy God is and how unholy we are. It gives us the experience that Isaiah had when he saw the holiness of God and what did he say? Woe is me. For I am undone. I'm coming unglued. The rivets are coming, are popping out. I'm coming unraveled because I've seen the king. And he was conscious of his sin and of the sin of the people around him. The law of God shows that. The Puritans said that there were three uses of the law. The first was the political use. Doesn't mean you use the Ten Commandments to get elected. Um, political use means because men are made in God's image, their, their conscience bears witness to the law. So that it restrains men from being as bad as they could be, even the, the, the natural man. Another use is as a rule of duty for God's people. That is, that this is how we show our love for the Lord and our love for our fellow man is by walking in obedience to this. But what is the, the third use? Does anyone else know what the, what, what the other use is? The evangelical one. The evangelistic use. You use it in evangelism to show people their need for Christ. Because people will say they're perfect, but then show them the standard of the law. What happens? Suddenly, they're exposed. Right? Oh, I'm not good at all. And the Ten Commandments teach you about the act of obedience of Christ, don't they? That is what his act of obedience consists of. His obedience to the moral law. And so they say, oh, I'm so righteous. Really, are you as righteous as Jesus? No. That's how righteous you must be. That's the only righteousness that can satisfy so you're teaching them about the active and passive obedience of Jesus already in a way because what, what did Jesus die for? Our violation of the law. What is the righteousness he gives to sinners when we believe on him? His righteousness, his, his obedience, his active obedience to the law as a man. So uh, there's an aha moment here for you. Why have I been having you guys memorize 40 questions and answers in the shorter catechism that are all about what? The Ten Commandments. Do I expect you to go and say, Hey, brother, hey man, I want to talk to you about Jesus. And let me tell you that question number so-and-so in the shorter catechism says, and here's the answer. What I'm wanting you to have is the ability from memory 
to tell them what the Ten Commandments are. You don't have to recite every single verse of Scripture. But to summarize, first of all, the Lord your God, you shall have only one God. You know, you should not make graven images. You should not take His name in vain. You should remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. All those things, honor your father and mother. I've, what I'm doing is equipping you for evangelism. I'm equipping you with a message. Whether you're preaching in a pulpit or whether you're just sharing one-on-one with a friend or a neighbor or a loved one, you're given the law so the law can then be used as a tool to bring people to the people their need for Christ. So there's a master plan going on this entire time. You just didn't know it, right? Um, but think about it. The moral law is seldom used today in evangelism. Almost never. I had to preach a funeral for a neighbor years back, and another neighbor who is a Christian was there, and I preached the Ten Commandments and then called men to Christ. And this neighbor who was a Christian came up to me afterwards and says, I have been in church for 60 years, and I have never heard anyone use the Ten Commandments to show people their need for Jesus. I'm going to go tell my pastor he should do that. I said, you do that. <laughs> but 60 years old, six years old, never heard anyone in church and that you, you could go into churches and never hear that. In fact, you go into churches for 60 years and never hear anybody call you to repent. Right? So that's why it's so important. So here's the Ten Commandments. Uh, Paul, Jesus used the Ten Commandments to lead the rich young ruler to Christ, to show him his need. And Paul uses it in Romans chapter 2 to show us our need and why we need Christ because the law can't justify you. It can only show you your sin. Right? So it's the law of God is part of that. And then the day of God. The gospel is flee from the wrath that is to come by fleeing to Jesus Christ. But when you say the wrath that is to come, you're talking about a future event. You're talking about eschatology. Do you realize you can't deny eschatology and do, and do evangelism? Because you're telling them there's a, there's a hell and there's a heaven in their future. They're going to die and they're going to go somewhere. They're going to be in heaven or hell. There is a day of wrath coming when Jesus Christ returns. So even in the uh, gospel, just in basic evangelism, you're already getting into eschatology in a very practical way. My three oldest children all profess Christ, uh, faith in Christ. We see good fruit from them. They've all told me that when the, the first realization came to them that they needed Christ was when they realized Jesus is coming back and I'm not ready to meet him. So eschatology has a massive role to play in evangelism. Two different times I've had men come into our church visiting, and they said to me, one of them said to me, you're the first pastor I've ever heard say from the pulpit, flee from the wrath that is to come. Another man came into our church. He said, that's the first time in eight years I've heard anybody in the pulpit say, flee from the wrath that is to come. You know what my response to both men was? That's sick. What on earth are these people preaching if they're not warning them to flee from the day of judgment? Because that is what the gospel is. Flee from the wrath that is to come by fleeing to Jesus Christ. Paul on top of Mars Hill, speaking to ignorant, biblically illiterate pagans, he said, these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world by the man whom he has chosen. He has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. The reality is, today's evangelism needs a healthy dose of sinners in the hangry, sinners in the hand, hands of an angry God mixed into it. Not because we're mean, not because we we're angry with sinners ourselves, but because people need to be warned. God is a just judge. God is angry with the wicked every day. That's Psalm chapter seven, verse eleven. He's angry with the wicked every day. I will never forget where I was 
when I first heard someone say, God is angry with sinners. I was a sophomore in Bible college. Mm. I was sitting there in Romans class. Dr. Cliff Bedell, who now is with the Lord, he'd been a missionary to the Philippines. He summarized Romans 1-3 through and he looked at us. I'll never forget it. He said, Man has revolted against God in his revelation of himself and God is angry with mankind. And that hit me like a thunderbolt. Because I never heard anybody just come out and say it like that. What a powerful thing to hear. We need to hear those things. Um, when I was a senior in Bible college, and several of us went on a Friday night down to the University of South Carolina, which is just a few miles down the road, went out two by two to share in the gospel, having gospel conversations with anybody on the campus who would talk to, and happened to run into this young man who was about 18. Me and another guy were sharing with him, and I was really pressing upon him this whole wrath of God thing and talking to the young man. And the young man was a very gentle fellow, very teachable kind of fellow. And I was telling him, because you cannot save yourself, you're hopeless. You're helpless and you're hopeless outside of Christ, right? And, and we're talking to him about that, just talking about God's judgment that's to come. And I'll never forget it. This guy was so overwhelmed with white-hot conviction that he was literally trembling. And he looked at us and he says, Man, would you please pray for me? I was raised in church. And as you're telling me all these things, I'm reminded of all the stories about the Bible I heard all growing up in church. And I know that what you're saying is true. Would you please pray for me though? Because it's hard to confess because it means the end of me. And I'm like, whoa, he's got it. He's got it. And we went on to tell him about Jesus. And he professed faith in Christ that night. I have no idea whatever came of the man. I hope we meet him in heaven. But nonetheless, here was the point. He, he, suddenly all the things he had learned all his life came back to him because he heard about a day of judgment that was in his future. But do you stop there? Is that the gospel? Is that the good news? No, that's the bad news. That's why you need the gospel. The gospel is under our next heading, and that is that God is gracious to sinners. Once a sinner begins to recognize their need for a Savior, you must teach them about the Savior God has provided. And John Newton once said, Two things I know. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And that's what you're giving to them, right? The same just God who punished sinners is also a merciful God who loves sinners. And sin is only begotten Son to die in their place. And that salvation is found in only one mediator, Jesus Christ. There is no other besides Him. Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified, right? Do you hear he's saying two things? Jesus Christ, who He is. Christ crucified, what He came to do. You've got to know who He is. And you've got to know what He came to do. So, let's talk about that. That's why I have the person of Jesus Christ and then the work of Jesus Christ under this heading. The person of Jesus Christ. You must tell them who Jesus is. Don't assume that they know. Because there are many false Jesuses out there. The, Muslim, the, the Mormons are preaching a false Christ. Their Jesus is the brother of Lucifer. He's a created being. He's not the second person of the Godhead. Jehovah's Witnesses say he's the Son of God, but he's not God the Son because they deny the Trinity. The Jesus of the liberals is not the Jesus of the Bible. You know why? Because he's still dead. Right? The Isa of Islam, Rick Warren notwithstanding, is not the Jesus of the Bible. They're Isa. They're looking for the return of Jesus. Did you know that? Their Jesus didn't die for sinners, and they don't believe in the Trinity. 
He's not the second person of the Godhead. You have to tell them who Jesus is. You cannot assume they know who he is. What would Paul tell the Corinthians? If someone preached a different Jesus to you, I fear you might believe him. So there were different Jesuses being preached than the Jesus of the Bible, even in Paul's day. John warned about false teachers who had departed from apostolic doctrine who affirmed the deity of Christ. That's more than most cult leaders do now. But they denied his humanity. And there was the spirit of Antichrist, Paul said. Don't assume that this culture knows who Jesus is because they don't. This is a biblically illiterate culture we live in. We are preaching on Mars Hill. We're, we're preaching to a biblically illiterate public. That's why I have you reading um, uh, Kenneth Pryor's book, The Gospel in a Pagan Culture. He makes that point. 1975, he wrote the book. He's saying, let's understand, Great Britain, United States, we're not preaching to the biblically illiterate synagogue anymore. We're preaching to people who don't know their Bible. Even in the church, that's so often true. So you have to show them he is the eternal Son of God and that he's the incarnate Son of, uh, Son of Man. That is, he's as much God as if he wasn't man, as much man as he wasn't God. Now, you don't have to go into the whole Athanasian Creed and explain all that to them, but give them the basics. He's God and man at the same time, and the only mediator between God and men. And then move into the work of Jesus Christ, his incarnation. The eternal God became man in the fullness of time. His sinless life is important to express. You're teaching them about his act of obedience, even if you don't use those terms. You don't explain it all to them, but you talk about how he obeyed the Lord in all things. And then his sacrificial death, and when you do that, you're talking about his, his passive obedience, right? Again, don't use that term, but you've introduced the concepts of active and passive obedience without even using the terms. He lived a sinless life, but he died a voluntarily uh, uh, substitutionary death upon the cross. And what do you need to emphasize next? He rose again. I'm going to give some special emphasis to this. Brothers and sisters, if you don't talk about the resurrection, you haven't shared the gospel. The resurrection is the thing. When Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, what was he saying? You'll be witnesses to what? You've seen me. And, when, and the turning point in every gospel conversation that you find in the book of Acts is what? When they get to the part about Jesus rising from the dead. The, Jesus, you by lawless hands took and murdered and crucified, but God has raised him up. And in Mars Hill, they're talking about, Paul's talking about who God is and give him a crash course in Theology 101. And it's when he gets to, and God raised him from the dead. They're what? <laughs> what in the world are you talking about? This is strange stuff, man. Never heard this. Without the resurrection, the gospel's meaningless. And so you've got to give them the gospel. I've been trying to be more conscious, self conscious, even as I preach each week, of emphasizing the resurrection. Doesn't mean you have to wax eloquent upon it, but speak of the fact that God's raised him from the dead. Because that is the proof that he is the one way to God and nobody else is. That's the proof God has accepted his sacrifice in behalf of sinners. And that is the proof that he's coming again. Okay, So talk about the bodily resurrection. And then the ascension. How often do we talk about the ascension or think about it? But even in the gospel message, you hear this. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. He has coronated him. What was coronation day? Coronation day, when he became as man, the king of kings and lord of lords, was at the ascension, when he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. So it talks to the fact that he is a king. And then there's something else you can speak of about his work, something that's future. And what is that? Coming again. His second coming. He is coming again as the judge of the whole earth. Are you ready for him? Point to that in the future. Now, 
Did anyone notice something? You might notice I just summarized the Apostles' Creed. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to it. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. So I've mentioned the Apostles' Creed. We've talked about the shorter catechism. Who knew you could use this stuff in evangelism? Right? But it's a summation of the Gospel, isn't it? So, you talk about what Christ has done, uh, who He is and what He's done, and that leads us to the third point. Now you've got to press it upon your hearers. What are you supposed to do about it? Right? Because that's what you're bringing them to. So the third thing is God grants repentance and faith to sinners. And of course I'm using that in sovereign grace terms. That repentance and faith are granted by God's sovereign grace to His elect people. You don't need to talk about election when you're doing evangelism. Just talk about sinners needing Christ. Um, there's two things under this heading. The sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the responsibility of sinners. That is, responsibility to repent and believe. The sufficiency of Jesus Christ to save sinners. The, Bible, the, the, the gospel is not repent and believe because Jesus died for you. It is Jesus died for sinners. He's raised from the dead. If you repent, if you believe the gospel, God's promise is He'll save you. He'll forgive you for your sins. And Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He's alive and He is able to save you right now. He's just as willing as He is able. And when you start talking about God, Christ's ability and His willingness, be liberal with that glorious pronoun, you. The promise is to you. This is for you. Remember Paul and uh, our assume is Peter in Acts 4? He says, For this reason God sent him to bless you in turning every one of you away from your sins. You don't say Jesus died for you, therefore repent. Jesus died for sinners if you repent, if you believe. God's promise is for you because it's for every sinner. It's every sinner, any sinner, anywhere. Repents of their sins and puts their faith in Jesus. Come to Him. It's a really wonderful thing to say you. and mean it, you singular. That God is able to save you. He's just as willing to save you as He is able. That's the best of good news. Be personal with it. Show them the pity of Christ. The mercy of Christ. The willingness of Christ to save. Because God's wrath will show them their need. It's not the thing that wins them though. The thing that wins them, that draws them in, is the irresistible love of Jesus for sinners like them. That's the thing. Spurgeon famously used to tell his students, flies are more easily caught with honey than vinegar. Make much of the pity of Christ. You don't have to exaggerate to do that. Because he is full of pity for sinners. He loves to save sinners more than sinners love to be saved. He really does. Because I didn't want to be saved. He, he came and got me. Right? He overcame it. He, he was found by people who didn't even seek him. So press that upon people. Show them his willingness to save. And then the responsibility of sinners. Brothers and sisters, when you're sharing the gospel, don't let your faith in sovereign grace keep you from pressing upon them the weightiness that they have a responsibility. There's something they're supposed to do. God doesn't do it for them. They have to repent for themselves. They've got to believe for themselves. And don't hesitate. You're not being Arminian if you tell them that. You're being gracious and you're being true and you're being gospel-centered. 
And you're being really experientially Calvinistic. <laughs> okay? You're saying to them, I am expecting you to change your mind. I'm expecting you to change your will. I'm expecting you to turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus. I'm calling upon a response here. And if you don't respond, it's your fault. And it's going to be that much more, you're going to be that much more guilty before God because you were given this light. And you, and you denied it. So don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of that because repentance and faith are synergistic. There's something God enables the sinner to do, but the sinner does do them, doesn't he? Nobody does it for him. God enables, but God doesn't do it for him. Um, we know that only sovereign grace will enable them to do it. But our job is to lead them to the narrow gate. We can't force them to go through it. All we can do is bring them to the narrow gate and plead with them. This is why this is desirable. This is why this is needed in your life. Please pass through the narrow gate. I love, you you guys have heard me use it before, but I love doing this illustration. It has two books. I have a black book and a white book. And I tell people, what's what's the hymn say? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. But the problem is sinners have things in their hands that keep them from clinging to the cross. And we have this black book called My Sin. And I always open up and say, it's a little tiny book. It's all my sins are written in really small print. Okay, So it's all my sins I've ever committed. And the problem is I'm told to repent of my sin. I don't want naturally to repent of my sin. I cling to my sin. I kiss my sin. I love my sin. Don't want to give it up. But then even if I'm convicted of sin, I've got another book. And this is a little white book. And it's got my righteousness written in it. And that's written in real large print. But here's all the righteous things I've done. And when people are convicted, what happens? They start saying, well, let me let my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. And maybe God will let me into heaven because I've changed over and turned over a new leaf. But the problem is, my righteousness is as filthy rags and so is yours. Because it comes from the same polluted source that all my sins come from. And so I like to say, take that white book and put it inside the black book and say, see, this is where my righteousness belongs. It belongs in the book of my sins because my righteousness can't save me. But if I will repent of my sin and I throw the book to the side, the black book aside, and I repent of my righteousness and I throw that righteousness aside, and then I lay a hold of Christ with both hands, I can be saved. And so can you. And I find that helpful to describe not only repenting of sin, but justification by faith alone. The, the language of repenting of your righteousness, I think, is very helpful, very useful that way. Well, I have four applications to make, and then we'll take some questions and we'll take a break. First of all, evangelism is more than telling the facts of the gospel to the lost. It also involves earnest pleading for the sinner to be reconciled to God. I began the session by quoting to you from 2 Corinthians 5, 9-21. I believe it is, you see there, the heart of a true evangelist. Um, Paul calls his ministry, quote, the ministry of reconciliation. He calls the gospel he preaches the word of reconciliation. And listen to the language, the earnestness of his language. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Verse 20, he says he and his traveling companions were, quote, ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. The free offer isn't just coming from us. We're representing someone else who's making the invitation. You ever notice how the book of Revelation ends? The Spirit and the bride say, come. The Spirit invites you to Christ. The church, the bride, invites you to Christ. They're both saying the same thing. 
The church is channeling the message that the Spirit gives. He's inviting, it's God Himself inviting you to be reconciled to Him. That's powerful, isn't it? To think through. Uh, But notice those words, plead, implore, persuade. It's like Paul saying, I'm going to get on my knees and beg you to come to Jesus. Whatever it takes to convince you, please come to the Lord. What did he say when he was being on trial? I wish that you were just like me in knowing Christ except for these chains. Now they were zealous for the glory of God, but these men also cared about people. They wanted them truly to be saved, and so they didn't just give them the facts and say, well, I gave the facts, I've done my duty. They pleaded. They sought to persuade. They were earnest. There was a passion in them. It wasn't just, God loves you, we love you too. And it came across in the way that they preached. As modern witnesses, should you and I be any different? Can you look at your children in the eye and imagine them spending all eternity in hell? Can you look your co-workers in the eye and realize there's a never-dying soul behind that eye? It's going to spend eternity somewhere. There are neighbors that we speak to on the outside when we're doing our chores and everything else. They're going to heaven or hell. There's a day of judgment for them too. And the only thing standing between them and eternity and hell is the gospel that we hold on to. And you may be the only person who's around to give them the gospel. I need more of that in my heart. I need more of a zeal. It's easy to stay around chapel bells. I need a zeal for people outside the church. Because they're not going to, if we're waiting for them to come to church and you know, come to our worship services, Reformed Baptists, it's hard to get Christians to come to Reformed Baptist Church, much less is it non Christians, right? We've got to take it out to them. Secondly, as you grow in your abilities as a fisher of men, you'll learn to emphasize different portions of the gospel more than others when dealing with different souls. The gospel never changes, the message is always the same. But you remember I began my lesson last time about, by talking about the rich young ruler and how Jesus counseled him. And that's important to use that kind of an illustration to show the bankruptcy of so much evangelism today. But did Jesus counsel everybody the way he counseled the rich young ruler? Did he speak to the woman at the well the same way? Did he speak to the Pharisee Nicodemus in the same way that he spoke to uh, uh, Zacchaeus? You find him giving different applications to different people. Why? Because they were in different places in their own souls. And so, even in the apostles, do you find that, Paul, that Peter preached exactly the same way to Cornelius that he did at Pentecost? Or that Peter, Paul preached the same way in the synagogue that he did on Mars Hill? He understood the condition of his hearers and he adapted his message to where they were. The message didn't change. The gospel didn't change. It, it's all ended the same way. Jesus died for sinners. You must repent and believe. There's a day of judgment coming. But the way he got there was different because he was sensitive to the souls. So, for example, let's say that you're talking to someone and they are already under conviction. Do you have to spend a whole lot of time talking about the law of God and the day of God? They're already convinced of that. And maybe they're beginning to look into their own righteousness to fix themselves. And what you really need to do, give them is a free offer of the gospel. I have a friend who is in the ministry. He's uh, British, actually, but he's in um, Connecticut. Uh, he preaches there. A guy named Mark Rains. He was raised in a Christian home. Uh, as a matter of fact, a Reformed Baptist home, of all things. But he wasn't converted. 20 years old, he was in college, 
and he had to hurry up and sign up for a class, but he was late getting to the class, so he just had to take another class that was available. He wound up taking British literature that was taught by an atheist. And they had to read, as part of American literature, they had to read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And the guy spent an entire class session ripping apart Jonathan Edwards and how much he hated him. But he read that, 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 that sermon by um, Jonathan Edwards and it convicted him. And he said he was under conviction for three months. He didn't say anything to his dad about it. But he's under this conviction, just under this duress. And finally he opens up to his dad and tells him, Dad, I read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and I'm just I'm realizing how sinful I am. And he's just talking about trying to make my life better and you know, all this kind of stuff. And his dad just looked at him and said, Son, it's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. And that was the moment he was converted. And years later, he lives down the street from Yale University that houses Jonathan Edwards' library. He called him up and said, Can I see his handwritten notes for Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Sure. Here's a date and a time. They didn't make him wear gloves. They hand him the handwritten manuscript and he's holding it in his hands. He's like, this was preached how many hundreds of years ago and the Lord used it to convert me. And here it is in my hands. <laughs> but what was the thing? He was under conviction for a while, but what did he need to hear? The freeness of the free offer. What Jesus has done. That's the basis by which you're saved. Um, other people, if you have someone who's really self-righteous, you're going to have to deal, stay in the law a little bit longer, right? You're going to give more emphasis to the fact that you are you know, your, your own righteousness is not sufficient. You get what I'm saying, though. Different people, some people are going to need greater emphasis on repentance. Others need greater emphasis on just the freeness of saving faith. But you're going to have to be sensitive to the people there. But you develop that as you go. You don't just arrive with that one day. So I hope that makes some sense. Third, you must make Christ known to the lost by both your words and your conduct. It's a popular saying that's erroneously attributed to Francis of Assisi, and it's absolutely dead wrong. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. You ever heard that? What have we seen this afternoon? You have to use words. People aren't going to just look at your moral life and say, hey, I want what he's got. Uh, as a matter of fact, if they were going to do that, they would, your Mormon neighbors would be really good, very attractive to them. You ever had a Mormon neighbor? They're great neighbors. They're wonderful neighbors, very virtuous people, but they don't know the Lord. No, you have to give them the gospel, but that being said, you've also got to have a life to back it up. A life that says, hey, my life is one transformed by the power of the gospel. I'm not a perfect man, not a perfect woman, but you can't have a foul mouth and talk about them, how they need to come to Jesus to be saved. You can't live as a hypocrite and expect that they're going to suddenly want what you have. As a matter of fact, I've been amazed over the years. The world picks out a phony quicker than the church does. I remember a guy who used to go to strip bars every single day of his life told me, oh yeah, that guy's he's not a Christian. Married to a woman that professes to be a Christian. I said, yeah, I think she's a Christian. He goes, no, no, I don't think so. She professes to be. I don't think she has the real thing. The lost reprobate guy's telling me this. I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know? He could see through the hypocrisy. They can also see the real thing. You've got to have a life that backs it up. David Hesselgrave, a missiologist, you'll hear me quoting him a lot in the coming months, God willing. But he made a comment that I thought was helpful. God doesn't just send a message overseas. He sends messengers. People who are good examples, whose example backs up things. Um, you and I cannot be eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus because we're not. We do have one with us, by the way, 
The Holy Spirit is an eyewitness to the resurrection, and he's with you as you share the gospel. So you have a living witness with you whenever you share the gospel with somebody. But being a witness for us means I have personally experienced the transforming power of the gospel for myself. And one beggar telling another beggar where I found bread. And it doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect in front of the world. Oh no, if I'm not going to be perfect, then I can't share the gospel. Uh, good luck with that. Okay, There was a time in construction work where I said some things, I rebuked some guys. They were gawking at a woman instead of working who was walking by uh, on the road. Some of them professed to be Christians, and I rebuked the daylights out of them. And to be honest, I was way over the top, and I was very self-righteous. And one of the men who, who knew he was lost was very offended by what I said, but he didn't say it to me, but a, you know, as Marvin Gaye said, I heard it through the grapevine. He was offended, right? And I found out he was offended. And so one morning he drove in and was there in the, in, the parking, in the parking lot. And I walked up to him and his name was Andy. And I said, Andy, are you offended at me? No, no. I said, well, so-and-so said that you were offended the other day when I rebuked you guys for that. And you know what? It was wrong for me to talk to you the way that I did. That was over the top and I was so very self-righteous. Would you please forgive me for the way I spoke? This man, I think it shocked him. He goes, well, it did bother me. But yeah, yeah, I forgive you. And I said, he says, you know, Jerry, I try to be a Christian and blah, 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 blah. And I was looking and said, Andy, you got to stop trying. It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. That man was my buddy from then on and was talking about the gospel. And, and we had gospel conversations because of my sin. I got to talk, I had an opportunity. But see, he didn't just see me sin, he saw me repent of sin. He saw how a Christian deals with sin, right? And then I can come to a non-Christian and ask their forgiveness and then be able to say, I'm a sinner like you, man. And I need forgiveness too. And to be able to point him to who Christ is. So let them see you sin, but let them see you repent of sin. And see how a Christian deals with such things in their life. And very often it becomes an opportunity to share the gospel. Fourth and final thing. You can plant the seed of the gospel and you can water it, but only God can give the increase. Never, ever forget that. You're not sufficient to regenerate anybody. You're not responsible to regenerate anybody. You can't even regenerate your own children. All you can do is give the gospel and plead and pray, Father, take the Spirit and pour it out upon them. Water the seed, let it go down deep in their hearts and let it bear fruit. But after that, your responsibility is over. Don't feel guilty for things that you can't control. Because the devil loves that ploy, doesn't he? If I was just more holy, if I was more prayed up, then more people would come to know Jesus. We internalize it. But as I told you before, if you blame yourself because people don't come to Jesus when you share the gospel with them, you're going to give yourself the credit when they do. Right? right. Don't do that. Don't do that. All you can be is faithful. And leave it up to God to take care of the, uh, of the harvest.